back to the Adam Schefter podcast, the Memorial Day week Adam Schefter podcast. And on this episode, we will be joined by the former Florida State defensive back who left school after his junior year to become a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University before coming back to play for the Tennessee Titans and the Pittsburgh Steelers, and now is in his fourth year as a senior neurosurgery resident at Harvard Medical School, Myron Roll, who has a new book out called The 2% Way, How a Philosophy of Small Improvements Took Me to Oxford, the NFL, and Neurosurgery. And I can promise you, there are not too many people who are more impressive in life than the great Myron Roll, who will be with us on today's podcast. But it's Memorial Day week, and that means the start of OTAs, organized team activities across the National Football League. And there are a lot of players in attendance this week. But there's one who stands out for not being in attendance, and that is the Arizona Cardinals quarterback, Kyler Murray. Now, it's not new that Murray is looking for a new contract and has been looking for a new contract all along, but it is new that he is not at OTAs this week. Don't think he'll be showing up there anytime soon without a new deal. And we are now into May, approaching June. There's still not a new contract for Kyler Murray. And the dynamics surrounding his deal have changed since his unhappiness about the situation first surfaced. Think about this. Kirk Cousins redid his deal in Minnesota, which now averages $35 million a year. The Green Bay Packers gave Aaron Rodgers a deal that averages $50.27 million a year. The Cleveland Browns gave Deshaun Watson a deal that averages $46 million a year. And the Las Vegas Raiders gave Derek Carr a deal that averages $40.5 million a year. That doesn't include Patrick Mahomes at $45 million or Josh Allen at $43 million, or Dak Prescott at $40 million. The point is, is that the quarterback financial landscape has shifted dramatically while Kyla Murray and other quarterbacks like Lamar Jackson await new deals. And usually with quarterbacks, not all quarterbacks, but most quarterbacks, the price on them only goes up. And so Kyla Murray is not in attendance this week and we will leave it to him and the Cardinals to try to figure out a solution to the stalemate that will continue to hang over this team until it is solved. Now, keep in mind, this is a team that already will be without DeAndre Hopkins the first six games of the year. And now, as you begin to work with rookies and newcomers on your roster, your quarterback's not there to get used to him. Now, if the deal gets done at some point, it's not an issue. He comes in. But Something tells me that this could go on for a little bit of time here. There's nothing new. There haven't been any significant talks. It hasn't gone anywhere. And as long as it's not progressing and moving forward, it looks like we will not be seeing Kyler Murray in an Arizona Cardinals uniform. We'll see if and when contract talks heat up over the summer. Another quarterback in the news this week, Deshaun Watson. Now, I think not a lot of people realize this, but when he was meeting with the NFL last week, he met with the league investigators multiple consecutive days, multiple. And in fact, there were meetings Monday, 
with the National Football League investigator, Lisa Friel, Tuesday, Wednesday. Not sure if they continued into Thursday or Friday, last I heard, but there were at least three days of meetings. And that is more meeting time with NFL investigators than any player ever being reviewed under the personal conduct policy ever has had before. So the NFL has put as much time into this case face-to-face with Deshaun Watson than it has any other player that it's ever considered disciplining before. Now, again, the NFL would like to have this solved by the start of training camp. We'll see whether there is enough evidence for Deshaun Watson to be disciplined. There were no criminal charges. There are still 22 outstanding civil complaints against sexual harassment allegations. And we'll leave it to the league to determine what went wrong and what discipline is warranted in this particular case. But that is something to be tracking as well as the summer unfolds. All right. Let's now move on to this week's guest, a man who is so impressive that he had to put some of his work into words, into a new book, the former Titans and Steelers and Florida State defensive back, whose new book, The 2% Way, How Philosophy of Small Improvements Took Me to Oxford, the NFL, and Neurosurgery, came out last week, the great Myron Roll. How are we doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Adam? Thank you very much for joining us. I don't know that we've had the occasion to talk before, have we? You know, we met once. You might not remember this, but I was with a guy, Reed Bergman. Uh, oh, yeah. I was doing I was doing like a car wash in Bristol one time. And like, I think I saw you like in the uh, in the cafeteria one time. But that was a long time ago. <laughs> well, you've done great things since then. And you continue to do great things. And we've always been a big fan of yours and all that you've accomplished. It's not often that we get a neurosurgery resident at Harvard Medical School in his fourth year there, who's a Rhodes Scholar, who went to Oxford, who has a new book out. Like, that is unbelievable, Myron. You make me and others feel so small in all their accomplishments. Oh, well, I appreciate it. So definitely a blessing, a lot of help, a lot of support, a uh, great God. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I'm glad that my parents are proud uh, and all the work that they put in to help me and my brothers get to where we are. So it's awesome. <laughs> it's obviously a very different path than the path that I'm used to a lot of people following that most people follow. How do we explain how this has all happened, how you have become this unbelievable medical student doing surgeries, playing in the NFL, Oxford scholar? How do we explain all this? How does this happen? You know, it, it starts from, uh, I think, the genesis of our whole story in the Bahamas. That's, you know, where my family's from. And we came to America. My parents really put education as a premium to me and my four older brothers. They wanted us to develop a firm foundation of education in this country because they knew we had come from a place with limited resources. And now we're here in America where opportunities were robust and we could really, you know, be go as hard, far as we wanted to. And uh, education was going to lead the way in that pursuit. And one thing that my parents did, which I truly love, and now I'm a new parent, so I'm going to do this for my children when they come of age, was they put some heroes in front of me that look like me. Uh, people like Paul Robeson and Booker T. Washington, uh, Kofi Annan, Nelson Mandela, and then Dr. Ben Carson. They put Dr. Carson's story in front of me. I read his book, Gifted Hands in the Fifth Grade. And at that point, I knew I wanted to do neurosurgery because here's this guy who looked like me, uh, was not affluent, didn't come from a lot of money. Parents had um, 
education and focus on education. He had a bit of a temper growing up like I did as well. But the fact mm -hmm. that Dr. Carson was able to separate two conjoined twins from the occipital lobe, have both of them survive, the first time this was ever done, be the youngest ever chair of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins, that just inspired me to want to move into neurosurgery, into neuroscience, into that space once I finished playing football and once I accomplished a Rose Scholarship, if those things were to happen. So I knew this chapter that I'm currently walking right now uh, was going to be the chapter where you know, I really made a huge difference in the world. And thankfully, it's working out that way. So you knew you wanted to be a neurosurgeon in fifth grade? I did. I did, Adam. Yes. <laughs> so I remember writing something for one of my teachers that I wanted to be a sports writer one day, which I actually didn't think was possible. And it turned into something like that, a version of it. But there aren't many fifth graders, I would imagine, Myron, who are dreaming of becoming a neurosurgeon. That's incredible. Well, I just found the brain so fascinating. I really did. I just thought this 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 organ that we have that can control the production of speech and our body temperature and our respiratory rate, our heart rate, it can tell us how our eyes move and sort of this conjugate gaze. I just it was so phenomenal to me. And and then reading more about it, I said there's so much more that we do not know. And maybe one day I can get into this field and answer some of those questions that are lingering out there in the neuroscience, you know, sphere. So and and uh, and now. Uh, that I'm in this field and having played football my entire life, I can have a foot as a physician scientist in the actual hard basic science, but then also have a foot into the game to try to preserve it and help with concussions and chronic traumatic encephalopathy and TBI and things of that nature. And do you do some of that now? I do. I write a lot about it. I go to conferences. I do a lot of speaking and advocacy on it. I talk to teams, uh, you know, throughout the, the preseason about TBI and concussions. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to do it. What's your stance and your takeaway and your presentation to them in general? So, you know, one thing I, I typically say is, uh, you know, this brain is uh, is a gelatinous structure that is in our hard skull. And when you're moving at the rapid speed that you are as a football player, there's it's bound to buck up against that hard skull and potentially bruise with micro hemorrhages and micro swelling. However, there are things that we can do to help either preserve our brain or prevent some of those catastrophic injuries from happening. Uh, wearing protective equipment that is that is thicker, has thicker pads and cushioning to help absorb some of that blow. Thinking about technology and advancing technology and leaning into the technology to make sure we can record what some of these high velocity impacts look like. Getting into social reporting and feeling like you can, you're okay. You're still a man. You're still an alpha male. If you say, look, coach, I don't feel quite right. I feel kind of off because you know what an ACL tear feels like or a shoulder sprain feels like. Everyone can see that, but sometimes concussions can be a bit nebulous and you have to go off of what the patient or the player is saying. And so I talked through a lot of these things and, and coming from the perspective of someone who has played football and knows what those Oklahoma drills look like, but also coming from a perspective of somebody who does brain surgery and operates on people who have had very bad TBI, you know, I hopefully my words uh, have a lot of meaning and, and power to them. I'm going to guess you might be the only person in the world who has the experience you do, who does brain surgery the way you do. Can you recommend playing football to kids or is it something that you would not endorse to young children today? Adam, I would endorse playing football. And, and here's why. I think football has given me so much. It's given me best friends. It's given me um, tools and traits that I use as a physician today. The ability to communicate, teamwork, being coachable 
that's something that a lot of young people just don't really understand as much as, you know, they think when someone is telling them something instruction uh, that it's yelling or berating them, but you can take some of the good from that instruction and you can apply it to your journey. Mitigating pressure, being flexible and adaptable. When the pandemic hit and COVID and it shut down my hospital, Mass General, I stopped being a brain surgeon and had to go and volunteer in our emergency department mm. to take in some of these COVID patients. So the ability to be adaptable and flexible is something I learned through football. So I think football gives me a lot. If I were to talk to young people about playing, I would say I wouldn't start as early as I did. I started at six years old, contact mm. hitting people. I'd start through flag. I learned the fundamentals and I'd make sure that coaches uh, were properly trained to teach the right drills and to have the right protective equipment because I think the sport is amazing and has done so many for people like myself and others. So you don't worry about the harm it could cause or would cause? You know, I, I, I don't um, because I think that there's ways to play the game safely. And I think that there are players who've played many, many years uh, who don't succumb to some of those, um, you know, the, the CTE, the protein deposits, the aggressive behavior, the suicide ideations and things like that. The studies that have been done so far, Adam, just to be incredibly frank with you, yeah. uh, the, the, the subset, the population that they chose uh, were people who they suspected already of having CTE. So, hmm. so it looks like if you play football, you're just going to have CTE. But that's not always the case. And we're still studying this disease because we don't know what it looks like in a live person. We can't see it on a scan. So there's more science that has to come through. I just think football has been so valuable to many young people. It's taken them from situations of despair and brought them to structure, brought them discipline, brought them friendships and brotherhoods, and even given them scholarships so they can go to a second year institution like Michigan or Florida yep. State and, uh, and and do, no, shout out, I had to give you a shout out, and, uh, and do some good work. So, um, so I love the sport and I hope it stays around. I really do. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. I do, you do, we all do, big, small. And when we keep them bottled up, as I sometimes have had happen in the past, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com Adam today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Adam. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A. V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Now, it's always an honor to get to speak to you, and I mean that, but the reason that we brought you on today, this week, is because you have a new book out called The 2% Way, How a Philosophy of Small Improvements took me to Oxford, the NFL, 
and Neurosurgery. It came out last week. The book is part autobiographical, part motivational. What will people get out of reading this book, Myron? Well, I'm hoping that people get this this mindset, this 2% way mindset that I got from my football coach at Florida State University, Mickey Andrews. He's my D coordinator, and he would challenge all of us on the field to get 2% better in our stamina, our tackling, our ability to high point the football. He just wanted us to have real life, practical goals of daily improvement. You see, some people say, get 100% better tomorrow. That's literally impossible if you want to double your talent in a day. It's not possible. But if you can get a little bit, just take small bites, have these small wins and stack them up a month, six months, a year from now, you can see your growth and improvement towards a better version of yourself. And so I write this story about starting from the Bahamas, where we're from, going to New Jersey, playing prep school there, going down to Florida State, Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, now as a neurosurgeon at Harvard, and how... I've had moments of self-doubt, uncertainty, prejudice, feeling socially awkward in certain settings, uh, dealing with my wife who's separate from me, right? We're dealing with distance and how do we communicate and raise a family when we're not in the same house? All of these human experiences, I talk about how I used a 2% way to mitigate those pressures, mitigate those challenges, make things feel, make things that seem overwhelming feel more manageable by taking small bites out of them. And, and I hope that uh, this book has a lot of um, utility and in, in people who read it. So do you and your wife, there's so much there that I'm going to get to. There's so much there. Do you and your wife not live in the same household right now? Are you in separate areas of the country because you're at Harvard and she's somewhere else? Correct. Yeah. So I'm in Boston at Harvard uh, as a neurosurgeon, as you know, and she's a pediatric dentist uh, in Orlando, Florida. So, and we have four kids under the age of two. So we're raising a family. My mother-in-law lives with us. My parents live 30 minutes away. We have a night nurse and nanny trying to stack the box for these kids. But I come home maybe every two or three weeks and she will come up to me. So we're trying to figure all that out. It's very, very difficult at times, but it is a process that we have worked through and we take our time through this systematic 2% way process just to, to continue to be close and cohesive. So yeah, we are separate right now. So you apply the 2% process that you've written about in your new book to your marriage and family life right now while you're in Boston, Harvard, and she's a pediatric dentist in Orlando. Why can't she just be a pediatric dentist in Boston? Well, well she's why bought- can't you? Or why can't you go to school? Well, I know why you would not want to <laughs> miss out on the Harvard experience. And you've been yeah. in Florida, Florida State. But why can't the families be together? I'm in my last year and a half of residency in Boston, and uh, and you know she has bought the practice down here. She's the owner of the practice in in Orlando, and she's looking to expand in all of Central Florida from Daytona to Tampa. So. And we want to make Orlando our home eventually. So if I just finish my year and a half up there uh, and we just sort of get through this tough time together, uh, eventually we'll we'll be able to live in the same home and, and I'll come home, honey, I'm home. And she's like, hey, I'm also home. I just got back from taking out somebody's tooth so uh, we can do it together. But yeah, it's um, it takes a lot. It, honestly, communication, hard work. I write about in the book. And I'm very vulnerable and open in this book. And I think that's one thing that I learned through this writing process that uh, I never really shared some of these personal details with people. And now I am because I want it to relate to anyone who picks up this book from a husband, a wife, a father, a son, a brother, a daughter, um, a leader, a coach, a pastor, teacher, whoever can read this and say, you know what? I, I, I've experienced something similar and I'm glad that Dr. Rolla is sharing. A lot of people would not be coming out with a book with so much wisdom, especially at the age of 35. But why 
was this the right time for you now, Myron, to do this book and not wait maybe till your family's together in Orlando and you're done with medical school? <laughs> Why now? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I honestly was not going to uh, write the book um, as early as I did, but my wife actually believed in me more than I believed in myself. She said, you know what, Myron, people come up to us all the time and say, you're an inspiration to me. And I've used your story uh, as a catalyst for my son or my daughter to achieve high success in school and mm -hmm. balance maybe athletics and, and, and academics. And she reminded me that the reason I got started on this neurosurgery pathway was by reading Gifted Hands by Ben Carson, that his story opened my myopia to what I possibly could become, seeing myself in his story. And she says, well, maybe you can do that for someone. And so believing in her, believing in me, wow. uh, it all sort of worked out nine months later, put some words down and had a literary agent and a publisher. And the next thing you know, this book is out and uh, we're, we're super excited about it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You mentioned prejudice at the beginning, and there's some prejudice in this book. Did you write about the story about the time that you walked into the hospital at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston to perform surgery on a patient, and they had a reaction that you wouldn't necessarily expect or the one that surprised you? Yes, I did. And I talk a lot about it because, uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a very, it was a searing moment for me. Uh, it... Um, it showed a level of maturity by me, honestly, to sort of react in the way I did because younger Myron would have reacted in a whole different way. But now a father, now a husband, now trying to be a leader, trying to be a true game changer in the world, I had to respond differently. So I've walked into patients' rooms and I've been dismissed, shooed away uh, by the patients to say, oh, you can take my food. I'm done with my tray. Take it right now. Or I'm not ready to go down to CT scan. Don't take me yet. Just, just leave. And I'm like, well, I'm not here to transport you to imaging. I'm not here to remove your tray. I'm actually a part of the neurosurgical team that's going to take out your brain tumor. Hi, I'm Dr. Myron Roll. And then immediately it's like effusive apologies. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, doctor. I didn't mean to. And, you know, again, old Myron would have said, you know, I can't believe you did this. This really frustrates me. I can't believe I'm still doing this no matter how high I've gotten. I'm now doing brain surgery at the best university in the world, but still people see me in this light because of my skin tone and because of my body. And, but I, I, I've, I've moved those thoughts aside and I've taken the approach of, okay, I'm going to work on this patient. I'm going to give the best care possible. And because I'm going to do so well for this patient, because the surgery is going to come out so well, they're going to say this black doctor in this black body he saved my life. He was a part of the team that saved my life. And now my perception of what I thought that people look like him were capable of has completely changed. And that's a challenge that I love to take, especially when I'm hit with those kind of moments, try to flip it and, and turn it for the good. How often have moments like that happened? You know, honestly, Adam, it's happened a lot more than, than I wanted to. Uh, maybe four or five times during my, uh, my five years at uh, Mass General Hospital. Boston, 
I was nervous about honestly, Adam. If I can be open with you, I was yeah. I was nervous. I was nervous about going to Boston initially. Coming from Florida, I was thinking, you know, I hear about the segregation that happens in the city. Some people black live here. Some people white live here. You know, there's there's all sorts of things going on. I just wasn't sure if I was going to feel that level of of, of hatred or, or or prejudice uh, hit me. Thankfully, it hasn't hit me in my colleagues and the nurses or administration staff or fellow residents or attendings. It's all been collegial and it's been phenomenal in the actual hospital. But where I felt it has been, you know, through some patients, potentially patients, families. And then when I leave the hospital, you know, getting some looks here and there, uh, I think some, somewhat questionable. But I just, I, again, I try to block it out. And Adam, the honest truth is that I feel like if I don't succeed, where I'm at in this particular station of my life, I'm not sure if they would choose someone like me for the next go around, right? They say, well, we already tried a job. Uh -huh. We already tried a student athlete. And if, and if this doesn't work, this experiment doesn't work, we can't go back and do it again. So I, I feel there's a pressure to succeed, pressure to do well, not only for the patient because they expect our utmost care, but also for the people following behind, people like myself and other colleagues who look like me, so that we can lead the way and, and hopefully blaze a trail so that the next generation can, can get through and do well also. How do you handle the pressure, the added pressure of being a trailblazer, which you are? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I pray a lot. I think through things with my Christ a lot. I, I talk to my family a lot. And I do talk out loud a lot, too. This might sound a little crazy, but if I'm in Starbucks or something, somebody might see me and they're like, what are you, what are you saying? I'm giving myself positive affirmations. I'm like, yeah, you can do this, Meyer. You got this. You got this, brother. You know, everyone else has done it before. You can do it. You're no worse than them. They're no better than you. You can get it done. I literally pump myself up and talk to myself consistently. And that's a part of my, my 2% way process of managing the pressure, managing the stress, managing the expectations and being the best version of myself, just slowly every single day, speaking life into myself. I do it quite often. And thankfully it's, it's worked out. <laughs> well, you talked about the fact that you mentioned your self-doubt in your new book, 2% Way, How a Philosophy of Small Improvements Took Me to Oxford, the NFL and Neurosurgery. So even somebody as brilliant as yourself, as accomplished as yourself, deals with self-doubt on a regular basis? Regular basis, you know, am I doing enough? Am I am I letting uh, my countrymen in the Bahamas down? Am I letting you know my attendings down? Is, is it, uh, you know, do I should I do I belong in this space? You know, I, I I come from Florida State University, and and I'm a little bit of a jock, and my peers are Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Penn. You know, their their family members have been neurosurgeons in the past, and they've published you know fifty articles about this one particular you know, therapy, immunotherapy for glioblastomas, the same tumor that unfortunately killed Ted Kennedy and John McCain. You know, they've done all this great work. And here I am, this big jock looking at a place. Am I supposed to be here? Like, am I, am I in the right spot, in the right space? And those reaffirmations, that 2% way process, leaning on family, uh, trying to make sure that I'm, I know that I'm here and called for such a time as this and always being prepared so that when they ask me, Dr. Roll, are you ready to do this? I can tell them with 100% confidence, I am ready. I've been ready. Let's get it done. You talk about the reaction that your classmates are giving you, the people around you in medical school are giving you. What was the reaction to what you had done while you were playing at Florida State and in the National Football League uh, for the couple of years that you did with the Tennessee Titans and Pittsburgh Steelers? So, you know, my teammates, uh, they were they were fantastic uh, when I played. Um, they loved and supported me. Uh, they needed to make sure that you know, I, I was one of them, 
they need to make sure that I was legit. Uh, so they would test me and try me sometimes. Uh, but for me, even getting myself into those settings, um, I know I need to find a commonality. I know I need to find a space that we both shared. Uh, so for the guys at Florida State, for instance, I would learn to freestyle rap, or I would learn about some of their culture down in Florida, things that they love to do, words they like to say, and sort of try to find my, my niche there. And the NFL was the same way. I had teammates in the Tennessee area, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, we go to church together. We found, you know, our commonality through Christ and things like that. So finding ways to be proactive and engage in social settings and have that respect from my teammates was important. And now, you know, with colleagues uh, at Mass General Hospital, it's finding the commonality uh, where I've come from, where I am now, appreciating me, appreciating, you know, my story, my history, and appreciating theirs as well. And, mm -hmm. and you know, working together to, uh, to get the job done. Do you still stay in touch with anybody that you played with at Florida State or in the National Football League, Myron? I do. Yeah. So, you know, my, a lot of my teammates are very close to me in, in, in Florida State, especially uh, one of the gentlemen was my groomsman at my wedding. Another one is my financial advisor. Another one's a god dad of my son. Uh, one of my sons, um, you know, my teammates who I played with in the NFL. We still have a group text. We talk quite often. Ryan Clark, Troy Palomalo. Troy actually wrote an endorsement for my book. We, we remained very close. When I did a rotation at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, I actually stayed at Troy's house in Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, I was spending time with him and his wife and his, his kids, his two sons. So, yes, I stayed in touch with a lot of my boys. Uh, they respect me. I respect them. You know, they call me for brain issues. How can they keep their brain healthy? Uh, so oh, I they give do. them tips on that. Oh, yeah. They a do. lot of them are at a lot of them are asking, you know, what what can they do right now to preserve their brain so they don't end up like, you know, someone who commits suicide or something like that. So I I love playing that role for my boys because they mean a lot to me. And what do you tell them? What is the answer to that question? Well, I tell them a couple of things. Vitamin E is something I recommend to our TBI patients all the time. Foods rich in vitamin E, uh, pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds. I talk about mocha is important as well. Chocolate, some some cocoa uh, is important. I talk about rest is important because if you get good rest, you have this system called your glymphatic system. When the brain is doing all of its metabolic activity, the waste has to get out some kind of way and the waste gets out best when you are at rest. You also need to be hydrated for the minerals and nutrients to get to your brain. So you have to have your body volume up so that your pathways of vessels can can lead these nutrients and getting there uh, properly. Uh, limit your alcohol, limit your smoking, those kind of things. I, I talk about a lot of these things. And then I say also, uh, you should do frequent, frequent brain teasers, crossword puzzles, read, activate your mind, activate those synapses either on a daily basis or every other day uh, so that you stay sharp, use your your brain like a muscle. And so I, I love talking to my boys about it. And uh, and they respect me enough to, to come to me and ask me these questions. Matter of fact, e even if it's not a brain question, they will ask me, hey, my wife's about to you know give birth. You know, what should I expect? I'm like, well, I'm not an OB guy, but I can find someone who can help you. So I love being sort of the the pathway for my boys when they want to know something about health. It's, it's been great. So people do come to you for medical advice in all areas. All areas. And, I, and I'm humble enough to realize, look, I don't know about birthing children that well, but I have a good friend at Harvard that can help you with this. So let me put you guys in touch. And the next thing you know, we're, we're all set. So I, I love it. I do. Going forward, am I allowed to be included on your group of guys, one of your boys <laughs> to come to you for medical advice? Please, please do. I encourage it. I really do. I love it. I love teaching. I love making things make sense, especially as it relates to 
strokes or, you know, tumors in the brain or, or spinal cord injuries or, or, or back pain, whatever the case would be. I really, really enjoy it, especially for people who, you know, I, I know they, you know, would, they, they appreciate the advice that I, that I give or the suggestions that I give. Uh, it makes me feel like the work that we've done our entire life is, is for a good purpose when you're able to give to those individuals who, who mean a lot to you. So yes, Adam, please, you're included now. Myron, I'm going to get your number and you're going to hear from me more than you probably want to because I'm falling apart as a 55-year-old middle-aged guy here. I'm just telling you right now, it's always something that's going wrong. So you'll be hearing from me again. Now, how much time do you have left at Harvard Medical School? When do you graduate and where are you going and what kind of, you're going to be a neurosurgeon in Orlando? Just lay out the game plan for me here for your future. So I, I finished in 2024. Uh, so I have about a year and a half, two years left uh, of neurosurgical residency. And once I finish that, then I'll spend a year doing a pediatric neurosurgical fellowship. Uh, so that's subspecializing in pediatrics. You know, we have neurosurgeons who do just the brain tumors, just spine, just endovascular, like clip aneurysms, just peripheral nerve, like putting your arm back together. If you get a a paralysis of your arm and you can take some nerves in your ribs and connect them to these nerves in your brachial plexus near your shoulder. And then your arm can move again. So you have neurosurgeons who just do that. You have neurosurgeons who just do Parkinson's disease, right? People who do have tremors, you stimulate a part of the brain and then they stop having those tremors. So you have those kind of neurosurgeons too. I want to be a pediatric neurosurgeon dealing with children because I love kids. My wife's a pediatric dentist. So we all love kids and we just enjoy it. I spent a year doing that after uh, 2024. And then I'll go down to central Florida uh, to be with the family here and uh, to enjoy uh, my kids growing up and hopefully coach them and do some cool things like that and and be an attentive husband uh, with my wife, who is um, a true rock star to have these many children and to look as good as she looks and to still be sane. She is phenomenal. The new book, The 2% Way, How a Philosophy of Small Improvements Took Me to Oxford, the NFL, and Neurosurgery. Myron, I want to thank you very much for the time. I feel guilty taking you away from your family this long when you're back in Orlando. And I want to wish you luck with the book. And it's a pleasure to connect with you like this. And unfortunately for you, you will be hearing from me again. Ah, Of course. I I love it. And I tell you what, I wish Latoya was here. I'll have to tell her about this conversation. Uh, because I sound, it, it feels like you're her number one fan. So I, I really do appreciate <laughs> how you're uh, trying to make sure my family is staying together, you know, as, as a, a mental health coach. I love it. Appreciate you, Adam. <laughs> and there is Myron Roll. And if he didn't make you or me or anybody feel inadequate enough already, we really didn't get the time to go into his foundation, which is aimed at serving underrepresented communities at home and abroad. And he started it up after. One of his aunts was hit by a car in the Bahamas and suffered a brain injury and didn't recover until she had to receive a brain scan. And it took a long time for her to see the neurosurgeon and she subsequently died. And so that led him to start this foundation. And it is just one more example of how much good he has done and will continue to do in this world a standing ovation for the great Myron Rome. All right. Also, Standing ovation for the social media department of the Baltimore Ravens. Now, last week, their veteran punter, Sam Cook, retired. And we see players retire all the time. But the Ravens social media department put together a video where it collected little video vignettes, tributes from Cook's former teammates. 
And if you haven't seen it, I recommend you watch it. It's on my Instagram page, at Adam Schefter, Instagram. It's on Twitter. You can watch what they did and the words that these men had and the effect, the impact that Sam Cook had on his organization while he punted for the Baltimore Ravens. It was moving to watch this five-plus-minute video on Sam Cook and the effect that he had on so many men. And we saw social media teams across the league do such a tremendous job with the schedule release. Well, here's another example of a social media team going above and beyond to do its job the way the Baltimore Ravens social media team did. Great job by that department. And while we're talking about the Baltimore Ravens, also should point out that they are spending part of this week filming a upcoming ESPN 30 for 30 on the 2000 championship team of the Baltimore Ravens, a great team that was led by its defense that won the championship with Ray Lewis and Shannon Sharp and Rod Woodson, Tony Siragusa, some tremendous players. They gathered together in Baltimore this week to begin to tape this documentary that'll air at some point, I would imagine, later this season. Look forward to seeing that. And that'll be tremendous theater. ESPN 30 for 30s do a great job on those particular videos. All right, before I let you go, let me tell you about Swaggo and Perk, an ESPN podcast led by its namesake hosts, Marcus Spears, Swagoo, and Kendrick Perkins. Perk, with new episodes every Tuesday morning, Spears and Perkins will bring listeners the latest NBA and NFL news, as well as a look inside their lives, career journey with can't-miss conversations. That's Swagoo and Perk. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and also available on ESPN's YouTube channel. All right, I want to thank Myron Roll for the time he gave us for this podcast. I want to thank my producers, Christina Buswell, Sarah Abbott for putting this together. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in to another Adam Schefter podcast. Please join us again next week when we are scheduled to be joined by the head coach of the Minnesota Vikings, the former offensive coordinator of the Los Angeles Rams, Kevin O'Connell. Should be tremendous getting the opportunity to talk with him next week. Until then, enjoy your Memorial Day. Be well and stay safe.